This is a Federal News Network podcast. Even though President Joe Biden reversed many of the policies of his predecessor, Donald Trump, there's one thing the administration has held on to, much to the chagrin of Congress. The Project on Government Oversight, or POGO, says the White House has continued to use the spending tool called apportionment to get around having to tell Congress where it's allocating appropriated dollars. For more, Federal News Network's Eric White spoke with POGO's government affairs manager, Dylan hetler Caudet. So apportionment, that refers to the process where the executive branch, and specifically the Office of Management and Budget within the executive branch, um, this is how they parcel out the appropriated funds that Congress has appropriated to the executive branch and they appropriate it to specific agencies, you know, like the Commerce Department or the Department of Labor or wherever. And they say, okay, so you have to spend this amount of money in a fiscal year on program X or project Y. And so what apportionment is, is where the Office of Management and Budget will spend these, what they call apportionment schedules to to the relevant agencies. And, okay, and they'll say, okay, so you have, you know, 25% of your appropriated funds for the first fiscal quarter, here it is, here are the things you're supposed to spend it on, and here's how it goes, right? So so it's basically a a management tool, a budget management tool that Congress gave to the executive branch and actually told them they had to use it because prior to apportionment, there were all kinds of issues where a federal agency would burn through its appropriated funds before the fiscal year was up, and then they'd come back to Congress with hat in hand, basically saying, oh, we need more taxpayer dollars because we spent all the money you gave us already. So apportionment, when it's used properly, when it's used for its intended purpose, and when it's used in a transparent way, it's actually a perfectly reasonable, perfectly legitimate tool of budget management. And so lo and behold, the two branches can't seem to come to an agreement on the way to use this tool uh, that is supposed to make things easier for both of them. Uh, What did you all find in your analysis? Yeah, so, um, and, and this should not be a surprise to anyone who kind of follows the way the federal government works, but when uh, one of the branches, especially the executive branch, has a tool that is powerful, uh, they tend to like to use it, and they tend to like to use it in ways that are specific and beneficial to them. And so what has happened over time is that we've seen that the apportionment tool has started to be used in a way that is very uh, behind the veil, if you will, behind the veil of the executive branch. So. There are no current requirements that the executive branch has to has, has to in real time sort of tell Congress how they're apportioning funds, and they definitely don't have to tell the public how they're apportioning funds. So, so the Office of Management and Budget will issue these apportionment schedules, and they're behind the scenes. They're entirely secret, but they have a big impact on the way that taxpayer dollars are be, being moved around and allocated. And there are even some scandals that will arise from time to time. The, the, yeah, the biggest example of this being in 2019, when the Trump administration used an apportionment schedule and used the special footnotes in an apportionment schedule to withhold security assistance to Ukraine in violation of the law. And that is an example of how the apportionment process can be misused, because what the Office of Management Budget can do in an apportionment is they can say, all right, so you have these funds, but you're not going to get these funds unless you do X, Y, or Z, which could or could not be in violation of what Congress told them to do. And that's a big problem because Congress is supposed to be the ultimate arbiter of what's called the power of the purse. Uh, the Constitution explicitly gives Congress the power to make decisions about tax and spending policy. And so the executive branch is not supposed to use its own ideas and its own policy agenda. All they're supposed to do is implement what Congress tells them to do with money. And so the apportionment process, because it is secret and because it is legally binding on federal agencies, so federal agencies, they have to comply with whatever OMB tells them in an apportionment. Like, all of a sudden, you see why we have a problem when it comes to the rule of law here, because these apportionment schedules, they have the effect of law and they're entirely secret. 
So that's where the rubber meets the road and why we have an issue of transparency and rule of law when it comes to the abortion process. Got it. And with the new administration coming in fairly, well, not, I guess we can stop calling them the new administration now, um, but they seem to be committed to more transparency when it came to this sort of stuff. But um, you all found that is not the case while they're kind of doing both at the same time, supporting transparency, but then saying uh, we don't really want to do it. Yeah, yeah. So we had high hopes that the Biden administration would come in and they would sort of usher in a sort of return to normal. And maybe they'd even raise the bar when it came to transparency and, and things of that nature. And they even had some of their some of their appointees at confirmation hearings early on saying that they would, in fact, be more transparent about things. And specifically, the current acting director of OMB, she promised to be more transparent specifically about the apportionment process at her confirmation hearing. Uh, but then as soon as uh, the House kind of said, OK, well, here here are some provisions that we're going to include in our appropriation bills uh, for fiscal year uh, 2022 that would require some transparency around apportionment and, and some enhancements to the Empowerment Control Act. The administration quickly came out and they opposed those those provisions and they even basically used the same exact arguments and ideas that were being used by the Trump administration when the Trump administration was also opposing these same provisions last year. But we found that kind of the more things change, the more they stay the same when it comes to this issue. Yeah. So is this too much of a burden to put on the Office of Management and Budget? Is it easier? I'm sure that they would say, look, you know, we're just trying to govern. It's already taken forever for us to fill our cabinet agencies with these political appointments. You know, maybe this is just a better way or more efficient way to get the funds to the agencies. What would you say to that? Yeah, well, I would say that transparency is always is always harder than secrecy, right? Because you have to you have to disclose and you have to report, and that does require work. But that is not a sufficient argument to not do it, right? There is a basic compact that we, the government, have with the government. I think a part of that compact, part of that agreement, is that you know we have the right to know what you are doing, specifically when it comes to our resources and our hard-earned taxpayer dollars. So for the executive branch and the Office of Management and Budget to say uh, it's actually too hard for us to tell you tell you what's going on here, to tell you how we're using your funds. You know, like that is not an acceptable or tenable answer. You know, that's not something that any of us would be willing to accept. So I imagine that Congress, members of Congress are also not happy about the arrangement. Uh, has there been any action from any legislators uh, regarding this issue? Yes. Yeah, so I mentioned earlier that um, uh, the House Appropriations Committee actually in their uh, financial services and general government uh, funding bill, they actually included some really strong transparency provisions that would require um, the Office of Management and Budget to in real time post these apportionment schedules and post written explanations about like what's actually in the apportionment schedules and things like that. So there are some really good provisions in there. We also saw uh, the House Budget Committee earlier this year, they held a hearing to examine these exact issues and, and they seemed very much in favor, at least the majority did, they seemed very much in favor of trying to enact some of these additional transparency and disclosure requirements. Um, and they, you know, last year uh, we also saw the introduction of the Congressional Power of the Purse Act, which is a kind of a sweeping sort of reform bill that would would have some apportionment transparency requirement, but it would also do some additional things, like it w- would empower the Government Accountability Office to really but to have the power to investigate these issues, to be the cop on the beat when it comes to appropriations and budget law and compliance with those laws. It would also have some changes around you know, the way emergency powers are used and the way, uh, the way the National Emergencies Act framework works. So it's a very good bill, and we, we are very supportive of it, and we are uh, confident 
that we'll see that bill reintroduced at some point, and we hope that it could be a bipartisan effort because everyone should have an interest, no matter what party you belong to, in trying to hold the executive branch accountable for the ways that it spends these hard-earned taxpayer dollars. I don't want to ask you to speculate or get inside the president's mind, but there has been a little bit of uh, people around the these, these types of issues saying that the president, since he came from the Senate, tends to favor the Senate. Um, is this maybe him looking down on the House and, you know, he would listen to his senatorial colleagues better than his House counterparts? Uh, you know, that's a really good question. I would also, as you point out, I do not claim to have any particular insight into the mind of President Joe Biden. But um, we, we always hope that because he spent so long as a member of Congress, that he would have some respect for the role that Congress is supposed to play in our system of checks and balance and separation of powers. But but. As I said earlier, you know, like his administration has come out and specifically opposed these provisions, you know, and so we are we are currently at an inflection point where we're seeing negotiations on the Senate side in terms of their appropriation bills. And they have the opportunity to include the same provision that the House did. And so we're calling on the Senate to include those provisions. And we would also be calling on the Biden administration to support those provisions, because, again, you know, we're always hoping that every administration is going to be a champion of an open, transparent uh, type of approach to governing, you know, and we we still have hope that the Biden administration will be. The old expression that talk is cheap really applies here. You know, you can say all the right things on the campaign trail, but until you actually do it, I think we all have to remain skeptical and we all have to keep the pressure up here. Dylan hetler Gaudet is government affairs manager for the Project on Government Oversight, speaking with Federal News Network's Eric White. Find this interview along with a link to the POGO report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, And then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it 
so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it. Um, From Sea to the C-Suite, fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, And I I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention and it was, it was, you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions. Uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And and I mentioned that I, I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and um his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. 
And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment. And it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, And I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And and, uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, During my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.